The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. But thank you for the invitation to come and speak this evening and to be a part of your lecture series. I know when I looked last semester at the topic eschatology and then saw all the various speakers down there, I thought, wow, now there's a topic that I would love to be a part of as I've spent quite a bit of time on it in my own studies and in my own teaching. Now, I try to be slightly provocative with this evening's title. If you saw on some of the flyers that were around, the title is God Bless America or the Land of Gog and Magog. And you know that's a, rev a reference to the book of Revelation in which many associate with some form of uh, final battle in the apocalyptic plans of God at the very end and often has to do with some sort of satanic battle at the very end. This evening, though, I want to begin by saying very clearly that my comments in the topic that we're going to explore, please do not mistake in it to be somehow anti-patriotic. I know in this day and age, especially with a number of world events that are going on, I think oftentimes it is the case that uh, people are taking sides in regards especially to America's foreign policy and some of the actions that have happened. And you've seen it all over the last election, right? Uh, what has happened in the Middle East in particular. And my intention is not to give you some sort of political agenda tonight. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to separate that out for you. But I'm here to describe for you historically how I've seen eschatology, this belief about last things in the history of the American church, how a certain, if I can just kind of lay my cards out a little bit early here, how a certain myth has developed with great strength and great force in the identity of who we are as Americans and how that is affected, particularly how the church and how Americans view each other. And I want to speak specifically about how Christians in America view what it means to be an American. And I want to kind of explain that out further and look at that in detail from a historical perspective. But let me begin by saying, uh, Gabriella asked me to begin because this is a, a new semester, a new lecture series, with just some general comments on this whole topic of eschatology. And some of you might be new to the series and hearing this word being thrown around all the time. Some of you are probably sitting in classes here at Westminster and you hear a lot of other professors using this term all the time in its various forms, adjectival nouns, you know, eschatology, it's eschatological and all these other descriptions. You're probably wondering, what is this word that is constantly being used here? Is it some sort of secret language that the professors speak to each other and we have to determine what it means? I think what uh, Gabriella was saying in the beginning, and what you'll probably have heard from other professors in the previous semester, and probably from uh, the remaining speakers this semester, is to describe eschatology as the ultimate things. 
And in particular, the things that God is bringing which are ultimate. Things like your salvation. Things like your ultimate future in Christ in heaven. Things about what God is doing by bringing this world to its conclusion in Christ and in a time where we will be in fellowship with God and with each other perfectly as a result of what God is accomplishing through redemption. And I think that's the general topic. And it seems like a lofty thing, right? A lofty topic to describe ultimate things. And I think the emphasis for this semester is now to begin to talk about how that actually impacts believers. How does it impact you? What does it matter that Christians are supposed to believe in ultimate things, last things, eschatological things. And if that is the case, then how does that play out during particular issues and particular topics as we move along? And I notice some of the other topics you'll be getting this semester on suffering, on worship, and things like that. But I want to begin by speaking most specifically to an issue that I think has had all kinds of historical misconceptions. And you've probably heard it over and over and have not even given a second thought to it. But before I do that, I'm going to slightly deviate from the definition that we've been talking about eschatology. And I'm going to give you a more narrow definition. And I'm going to use eschatology more narrowly. And you'll see why in just a minute. I want to speak not just about ultimate things but the very last things. Now, when I am talking about eschatology, I am actually going to be speaking about how individuals within the church, in America particularly, have understood the end of history. What are the events that surround the end of history? And for Christians, of course, that end is the return of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he bring? All Christians confess it throughout the ages, but not all Christians agree on what it will look like when Christ returns. And you see it all over the place, right? You see it in various opinions in various different churches, particularly here in America. And so I want to focus narrowly on that. What is eschatology specifically the last things? Now, if you look at the handout I've given, I've kind of diagrammed some of the more popular views that we see today. I'm getting tangled here. Uh, and you'll note some of these terms, and you're probably familiar with some of these uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and a post liberal eschatology at the end. Now, uh, for time purposes, I won't explain everyone in detail, but we can talk about that more in the question and answer period. But what we're seeing here, if I can be even more specific, is how Christians have interpreted a particular passage in the Bible. And that passage is Revelation chapter 20. The only passage in the Bible that refers to a millennium, and you'll see that throughout each uh, eschatological position here. The focus then is when and where will the millennial kingdom be described in Revelation chapter 20. Right? I think most of you are probably familiar with that passage about how Satan would be bound for a thousand years and Christ would reign and at the end of that thousand years, Satan would be released and deceive the nations again and there'll be a battle of Gog and Magog and the descriptions of Armageddon. All of that 
described in Revelation 20, and all of that attempted to be understood in various ways by various individuals. And you see that through here. And I think this is, generally speaking, the most popular options that we find in the church today. Some of you might be familiar with the Tim LaHaye books, the Left Behind series, right? It's become so popular these days. And that would follow the very first description, a dispensational premillennial description of the end times, in which they believe that in the future there will be a secret rapture. All of a sudden, believing Christians will disappear. They'll be taken from the earth. And those who are left behind, hence the title of that series, will have to endure a seven-year tribulational period on earth. You can see that in the chart as we move along. In that seven years, and they're interpreting Daniel 9 from this, you will see the rise of an antichrist figure. He will be a political figure who will reign on earth and will instigate a persecution, particularly against the Jews, in which we will see the most traumatic years of history. Okay. At the end of that seven years, Christ would return. There would be a battle of Armageddon, and that would be the description of the beginning of Revelation chapter 20. And Christ will set up a literal 1,000-year reign, a kingdom on earth for 1,000 years. Satan would be bound and cast into the pit, no longer allowed to deceive the nations, and Christ would set up a thousand-year kingdom on earth. And then at the end of that period, Satan would be released again, and there'll be a final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, and then the end will be the great judgment day and the new heavens and new earth. Now, historic premillennialism twists that a little bit there, and uh, I should mention that in dispensational premillennialism, Israel also, Jewish people as a nation also play a significant role. They are still, according to this view, the people of God. And therefore, the promises of God are still applicable to them. And there will be, in the end, this massive conversion of ethnic Jews. Now, what you'll be hearing more popularly amongst Reformed scholars today is one of the middle two views, either the post-millennial view or the amillennial view. And in those two, you will see the first coming of Christ and that the millennium of Revelation 20 is not actually something that's going to be in the future that Christ's return inaugurates. But instead, it in some part deals with the church age, meaning, particularly for amillennialism, that we live in the millennium now. And that Revelation chapter 20 is to be interpreted, not literally, but symbolically or spiritually describing the church age as it exists now. The return of Christ would bring in the new heavens and new earth. Now, I just lay that out for you, not because I want to go into detail and explain the rationale for each one or the biblical background, but I want you to actually have the vocabulary here by understanding when I say premillennial, what I'm describing, or amillennial or postmillennial. Okay. And we can talk about some of these details more during the question and answer, but I just give that to you as a kind of introduction so that we, we're all understanding the same vocabulary as we move through the events and topics that we want to talk about. But back to the title. God bless America or the nation of Gog and Magog. There has been 
And especially I've noticed it in the post 9-11 era that we live in now. A particular identification that this nation, United States of America, has a special place in the divine plans of God. It has been described in many different ways. It has been described as if America is some sort of an elect nation. Somehow special beyond all the other countries in the world. Somehow America has a particular purpose given by God in the world events that we see. And part of that, part of that purpose, some have argued, is a defense of traditional or historic Christianity. And here we're not talking about the church. Some have described that that is part of the American identity. That is part of what it means to be an American, is to have this identity of a calling from God in a particular Christian form. And that is to be carried out in the actions of America as a nation on the stage of world politics. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. This comes from a former president of the United States. We cannot escape our destiny, nor should we try to do so. The leadership of the free world was thrust upon us two centuries ago in the little hall of Philadelphia, not far from here. And the days following World War II when the economic strength and power of America was all that stood between the world and the return to the Dark Ages, even Pope Pius XII said, the American people have a great genius for splendid and unselfish actions. Into the hands of America, God has placed the destinies of an afflicted mankind. Okay. Somehow, America now, being given this responsibility by God from its very inception two centuries ago, Another president of the United States says, Our nation is chosen by God and commissioned by history to be a model to the world. Our nation, chosen by God, commissioned by history to be a model to the world. One historian describes it this way, No other country in history enables us to examine more closely the interaction amongst religious belief, culture, and public life than the United States of America. In a way, the first American settlers were like the ancient Israelites. They saw themselves as active agents of a divine providence. They were a chosen people. It was commonly believed among 16th century English Protestants, and especially by those connected to the sea ship captains, explorers, navigators, ocean traders, and adventurers, that the English were not only chosen by God, an elect people, but were given by him a special mission to spread the gospel overseas. This is an interesting way of looking at American history. This is an interesting way of describing America in terms of God's divine plans. And not just in terms of God's divine plans, but with a specific role in those divine plans. That America has this special calling and America has this special place. And if that is the case, if that is the case, then America has a lot of work cut out for it, right? <laughs> but you noticed 
this phrase now. I read to you a, a, a bit of a former president's speech. Let me give you the title of that speech. City Upon a Hill. And that reference to a city upon a hill has been used over and over and over in the description of America. And it comes specifically from an early settler here in America back in 1630 when he arrived on these shores, John Winthrop, and declared that a, this new colony would be this city upon a hill. It would be this shining example to the world. And over and over and over again, that has been used then to affirm this idea that America has this special destiny. And throughout American history, we've seen it applied over and over in many different ways. Some have claimed that from the early settlers, as I read from this historian, that they came here to America and they embodied in themselves the mindset that they were now the people of God. Just like Israel of old. Now they had become the people of God. And they had been given a special calling, just like Israel of old, to establish something specific here in America that would be a city upon a hill. And if you remember back into your old high school U.S. history days, and you talk about particularly the 18th and 19th century, as America moved from New England settlement down to the south and across the west, all the way to the west coast, California, where I come from originally, and all of this built with a particular understanding that somehow this land would be claimed for American purposes. The term manifest destiny, that its destiny would be assured because God had given it with a very special place and a very special promise. And throughout history, we've seen presidents and others continue to call back this sort of identity of America that Americans now are a part of this specific plan. And in many ways, some have argued, to be American is to understand this. To be American means to be a Christian in many ways. Right? And we've seen the tension come out, particularly in the 9-11 world now. We've seen it particularly as America now moves itself onto the world stage on a number of very hot topic issues now in which politics and religion intersect. And how do we understand that? How do we make sense of all this? I want to focus particularly on one aspect of all of this. And the aspect is this. Should the church identify itself so closely with a nation? Does the Church of Jesus Christ have a national face to it? Is it the same to be American as it is to be a Christian? And the implications of that, I think, are all over the place now as we think about this issue and as we think about particularly some of the political implications that are going on today. And I've made a number of references here that those who are advocating this idea of America as an elect nation, America of having this particular role in place, have, says, have said it is such from the very inception of this country. From the very first settlers who came to America, they came with the mindset and intention 
of establishing this city upon a hill, of claiming for themselves now a specific role and calling in the divine plans of God. And here's where church history comes into play. Can that be demonstrated historically? Can we go back to the 17th century and look and examine what these individuals were writing about and saying as they migrated from old world to new worlds, not far from here. What was their intention? What was their desire? What were they trying to establish when they came from old world to new? And I think answering that question historically will shed some light on what is it to be American. And how does the intersection then of theology, particularly eschatology, with what it means to be American in the settlement of this country, how should it properly relate? In the 1930s, a professor at Yale began to write on this subject in which he transformed our understanding of the American Puritans, these first settlers who came in the 17th century. Most had thought these people were backwards. They were strange people. They dressed in real staunchy ways. They had all these puritanical practices. They left the old world in order to live in a kind of commune lifestyle as settlers here. They were backwards people. This professor reversed that entire understanding. That in looking at their writings, he began to make the argument, and correctly, I would argue, that they were actually the intellectual elite of their time. That to be a Puritan in the 17th century was to be the intellectual elite of your time. They were the ones who were as well versed as anyone in the philosophies and theologies of their day, writing and interacting with the cutting edge thought of the 17th century. They weren't backwards at all. They were the brightest. And in many ways, they were the elite of their time. Their pastors were graduates of the best universities of the old world, particularly Cambridge University. And in doing so, he transformed a particular understanding of New England Puritanism. And for that, there is a debt to be paid from historians ever since who have started to examine that period. But this historian also did one other thing. He began to look at these sermons written by these pastors in which they began to describe what they were doing in biblical terms. And they began to, he began to look at these sermons in which there was a lot of use of the Old Testament imagery of Israel. And he began to see that maybe what these first settlers were doing, they were migrating from old world to new world with a specific purpose, just like Israel, who went from Egypt to the land of Canaan with a particular purpose. And of course, the history of Israel is to move from bondage through the wilderness to the promised land. And in the same way, this historian began to reconstruct the attitudes and motivations of these early settlers and said, it seems to follow in their sermons the same pattern. Bondage through wilderness to the promised land. Bondage of the old world, and if you know the 17th century old world, there was a lot of wars and chaos going on there. 30 years of war over the continent of Europe, civil war in England, and many have argued, and I think correctly so, they were religious wars. 
These were religious wars. And who, who were the sides fighting? Protestants and Roman Catholics, shedding blood all over Europe. You look at Northern Ireland today. You look at the conflicts that are happening today. The roots of those conflicts date back into the 17th century. And so fleeing from that old world, and in particular for these Puritans, seeing in that old world the dominance of the Roman Catholic emphasis. And if you're familiar with some of the Protestant understanding back then, particularly from Luther, they had already claimed that the Pope was Antichrist and had identified then the Roman Catholic authorities and structure with the powers of Satan. So leaving that old world of bondage, Miller, Perry Miller, this historian, assumed that they traveled over the Atlantic, this wandering in the wilderness, to come now to a new promised land here in America. Okay? Because they had a purpose. Because God had called them to be a city upon a hill. Now, many historians picked this up and said, this explains it. This explains what would motivate someone to leave old England, travel so far, and come to New England here now to establish for them what they thought would be now a pure country. A country now that would establish itself as a light unto the rest of the world, a godly society. And many began to look and say, well, how do they explain it? What theologically was the justification for all this? And they determined it was their eschatology. Their eschatology, the other historians have argued, is the reason why they moved. What do we mean by that? Nearly all of these New England Puritans, we would describe them in that early period of time as some form of premillennialism. Okay? And the specific characteristic of that is that they all believed that sometime in the future, there would be a thousand-year millennial kingdom. They hoped for it. They believed it. They thought it was coming. Those who followed this particular interpretation that I've been describing, from this historian Perry Miller and all the way down, had said, there it is. That's why they came. They came to America because they believed that they had a special calling and that would be to build this millennial kingdom here in America. They thought they were now the elect people. They thought they were like Israel. In fact, they were the new Israel. And they would come to America to build Christ's kingdom here in America. That was their hope. That's why they came. Now, of course, moderns would say, well, come on, come on now. You know, who believes that? Who believes that America is going to be the kingdom of God? Well, of course, we're all moderns now. We've been through the Enlightenment. We know no such thing will happen. But nevertheless, that attitude of being special and of establishing something special by some sort of divine right continues on. And America continues to have that identity. And you know why? Because of this. Because historically, there was a very similar attitude in these first settlers, and that had been translated now throughout the generations. Even though, yes, we're enlightened now, we don't necessarily buy all of their religious commitments. Nevertheless, their attitude and their motivation and their outlook 
for this America is the same. And some have said this is it. This is the historical roots of what we see today now in the American identity that considers itself divinely called an elect nation with great purpose and calling. If that is the case, then we have to examine the historical sources very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. Now, what I want to do now is give three arguments why I think that the historical sources do not confirm this interpretation of the 17th century. Okay? And again, let me preface my comments by saying I am not intending to be anti-patriotic here, but I will try out a number of implications in the end on where I think all of this leads. Okay? First, Miller is right in those who follow Miller. These New England Puritans believed, they actually did believe in a future millennial kingdom. Every one of them believed it. And you know what? They got it from one source. They got it from a Cambridge professor back in the 1620s, who in 1627 wrote a book called The Key of the Revelation, in which he laid out his interpretation of the book of Revelation, and it became the quote-unquote 17th century bestseller. Everybody thought, here it is. This guy's nailed it. He's unlocked with his key of the revelation, the understanding of these prophecies, and it became, in many ways, one of the standard interpretations in the 17th century. This man's name was Joseph Mead, M-E-D-E. -E. Okay? Cambridge professor spent his whole life at Cambridge there and became the leading expert on this stuff and on this interpretation. Okay? So to look at Joseph Mead is to look at the shape of eschatology in this period of time and his influence on these Puritans. And there's a fascinating thing that happens once you start to look at the writings and the comments that Joseph Mead makes. In particular, in the 1630s then, in the late 1630s, after the establishment of the New England colonies already, uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony in particular, there's one individual, a Puritan from the old world. His name was William Twist, T-W-I-S-S-E. Some of you might be familiar with that name. He was the first prolocutor, what we call the prolocutor or convener of the Westminster Assembly that produces our Westminster standards. Right? Twist actually takes a trip to America. He comes to the colonies here. And he begins to explore the colonies, begins to see, particularly he's interested in, the missionary work that's going on here. Evangelism to Native American Indians here. And he sees this flourishing of activity, and he goes back to the old world after his trip, goes back to England. Joseph Mead, his good friend, he writes him and he says, maybe, maybe America is going to be the place where the millennial kingdom is going to be set up. Maybe that's going to be the place because, look, I've just been there and I've seen the flourishing of the gospel there and it looks like that could be the place that when Jesus returns, he will set up his millennial kingdom in what he calls our plantations in America, our colonies. Now, if you follow the previous thesis of Miller and others, Mead's response should be yes and go there. If that's where the millennial kingdom is, then we all ought to go there. 
just like these early senators. That's where we should go if you want to be in the kingdom of God. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be in the kingdom? Go. But Mead in his writings says something very interesting. He says, you know, Dr. Twist, no, I don't think so. In fact, I think that in Revelation 20 and the reference to this final battle of Gog and Magog, I think those satanic forces are going to come from America. That that will be the place in which the satanic forces arise to fight the forces of Christ in that final battle of Gog and Magog. Why does Mead say that? Because he says, look, if you look at the entire history of the world, what land has been untouched by the gospel for so long? It's America. Satan has been reigning over them for so long. Here in the old world, we've had the gospel, but in America, no. Logically, in his mind, he thinks, well, when that final battle comes, where will Satan amass his forces from? From his home base. From the place where he's controlled the longest. America. What he's basically said to every New England settler of that period, you know what you've done when you left the old world to the new world? You left the kingdom of God. You've established yourself in the kingdom of Satan, and when the millennial kingdom comes, you're going to be left out. You're going to be left behind. You're the one who's going to be gone. Every New England settler from the 1630s all the way on to Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century feels the intense pressure to respond to Joseph Mead, to, to justify why they came to America and to demonstrate that in doing so, they did not forsake their inheritance in the kingdom of God. Every one of them responds. You see the writings all through the Mather family, all the way up through Jonathan Edwards. And every one of them says this. They do not say, um, no, Mead, you're actually wrong. You're the one who's going to be in the kingdom of Satan because you're back in the old world and we're establishing the promised land, the new kingdom here in America. No, no, no. None of them says that. Everyone says, yes, you're right. Old Europe will be the center of the millennial kingdom. But its geographic boundaries will extend across the Atlantic and include us in the new world. We will be a part of the millennial kingdom because its expanse will be so great as to incorporate us in the new world. If that's the case, then it's very hard to justify that the reason they moved from old world to new was because of some sort of abandonment of the old and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ in the new. They would not have responded that way if it was the case. Second argument here. The second argument is that Miller and others assume that these New England settlers claimed for themselves the status of Israel. They are now the new Israel. That the reason why that God's promises would be fulfilled in them is because they are Israel now. And everything that God had promised Israel has somehow now been transferred to them. They are the new Israel. But there's a problem. The most common interpretation of Romans chapter 11 in this period of time amongst all of these New England settlers was that they believed that Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 11 where it says all of Israel will be saved, that 
Paul is speaking about ethnic Israel. They all believe that in the last day there will be a conversion of ethnic Jews in Moss, a grand conversion in which Jews would return back to God. They would be saved. Why? Because they're the people of God. Because God's promises to them are still alive and real and that they are still the elect people of God. Israel. How can they claim for themselves earthly promises if it still falls upon Israel? How can someone say that they think that they are the new Israel, that all the promises of Israel have been transferred to them? When you read their writings and their arguments from Romans chapter 11, everyone says, yeah, we are expecting the conversion of the Jews. Why? because they're the people of God. And God had made promises to them. Even so much, this was so prevalent, that after the uh, execution of Charles in England and in the interregnum period of Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell tried to initiate by policy what was called the readmission of the Jews into England, meaning he wanted to gather the scattered Jews and bring them to England because he believed when that time comes and when they are converted, and if they're all in England, we're going to be blessed. <laughs> so he argued for the readmission of the Jews. There was, in the 17th century, a deep, what we would call philo-Semitism, love for the Jews. Because they all believed that in the end they would be converted, and who's ever around is going to be blessed by that. How can they claim, then, that these New England settlers somehow believed they were Israel when everyone still believed, no, Israel's Israel. <laughs> the nation of Israel is still Israel, and they still have a hope and a promise. Where's the problem at this point? What is not um, understood as historians have re-examined these early New Englanders? Here's where I think the problem is. What I've basically tried to do so far is to demonstrate history's full of interpretations. Okay? When you read other historians, they're full of interpretations. And we have to, in one sense, read it critically. And we have to examine the sources and see if they really bear out a particular interpretation. And if not, why not? If you believe me, why have historians that I have painted out there now misinterpreted all of this for so long? These aren't stupid people, honestly. These are professors holding posts with seniority much higher than mine. <laughs> what happened here that created a particular myth, I would argue, in this early 17th century period that has perpetuated then an identity within America that I don't think the historical sources bear out. I just demonstrated a couple examples why. And here's why I think there's been a, if I can describe it this way, a glitch in their research. Something they've missed. Okay? Something's happened here. And it can be reduced, if I can put it simply to this. They lack a theological understanding of what happened. All of these individuals that have been following this particular interpretation are historically or literarily trained. They're professors of history or they're professors of literature. And none of them have 
formal training in theology. And theology is necessary because if you're going to try to understand what a 17th century pastor or theologian is writing about, specifically in his interpretation of Revelation 20, you better understand his vocabulary, you better understand his background, you better understand the theological world that he occupies, or you're going to miss things. You're going to miss things. How so? You and I, I'm sure, have heard hundreds, if not thousands of sermons preached from the pulpit from the Old Testament in your churches, right? In which ministers do preach from the narrative of the history of Israel and talk about that history of Israel. And then they start to draw applications to you, right? And oftentimes, of course, it's to demonstrate, first off, that that history of Israel points to Christ. But in, in doing so, it also has principles to teach the church today, to teach Christians today, either by warning them of what Israel did or did not do, or of describing the blessings that God has promised in a typological form in Israel that are fulfilled later in Christ and have now come to the New Testament church in Christ. And we all understand that. We've heard it, right? Sunday after Sunday as it's being preached. And never once I would suggest that you sat there and thought, hey, wait a minute. The pastor is saying, I'm Israel. He's saying, I'm actually Israel. That I'm the literal Israel. That everything that God is saying about Israel there, it's me now. It's mine. I am Israel. You would never confuse that, right? You would never confuse yourself with Israel because you understand how sermons operate. You understand how the Old Testament works as it's being now applied in the New Testament church. It's as plain as the nose on your face because you've heard it and seen it. And if you came to seminary and if you sat in some of the Old Testament classes here, they would explore that even deeper for you and describe even more how all of this points to Christ and how all of this now is demonstrated within the church now. And never once would there be this strange confusion where you would walk out of a room thinking that you were actually a Jew. No, that wouldn't happen. Because we understand how, in a technical term, hermeneutics or interpretation operates. And how does it operate? And it operated for the same way they did in the 17th century. They believed that when you looked at the Old Testament and you looked at the promises of God there and you looked at what God was doing there, what you're seeing in, a, in essence is two levels. You're seeing a physical level, they argued, a level in which God is actually doing something with a real people, with a real nation, with Israel. It's not myth. It's true history. God moves them from bondage to wilderness journey, to the promised land, and all the struggles that happened there, even unto exile. That's a real history that's going on. God is really doing something in Israel. But at the same time, all of this serves a wider purpose, a purpose in which all of these things anticipate what God is going to do in his own son, Jesus Christ, and how that is going to open up now the plans of God to incorporate not just one nation, 
but members from all the nations. And we keep those things in our minds as we understand the Old Testament, right? We know what God is doing with Israel, and we know how that relates to us through Christ. But I would argue, if you hadn't heard that, Sunday after Sunday, and seen your pastors do that Sunday after Sunday, or have come to seminary and heard professors here explain that in detail, it's probably pretty easy to get confused if you're hearing a sermon for the first time or you're reading a sermon for the first time. All of a sudden, they're using this language and imagery and talking about their congregations with that language and imagery. All of a sudden, wait, what's going on here? What's going on here? People get confused, even by the way we name our churches, right? We use Old Testament language, you know, New Canaan Baptist Church or things like that. Right? And all of a sudden, what, what's going on? And if you don't have the theological context and background, it can easily be misinterpreted. It can easily be misunderstood. And I think that's exactly what's happened. They read the same text, but they couldn't make sense of it because they don't occupy that same world. They don't occupy that same mindset. They don't have the theological tools to decipher it. And so instead, they apply all other kinds of theories to try to understand. And what is lost, I would argue, is the true theological nature of why these settlers came. Now, I've argued it's, it's not because they wanted to come and set up some kind of millennial kingdom here. Now, they thought they would be in it, but they didn't come to abandon the old world and set up something new here. In fact, I would argue these first settlers never even thought of themselves as anything but Englishmen. They were still part of the old world. They still thought of themselves as subjects to their king and crown back in the old world. They did not come with some sort of self-conscious identity that we are breaking with what is old. No. They came to expand it. But they also came because they thought they could do something a little bit more. They thought, at the very least, we can establish a church that was pure, hence the term Puritan, in the way they believed it should be, in its practice and in its doctrine. So there is a religious element to it. There is a theological element to why they came. But I would argue it was not because of some kind of confusion in regards to their place as an uh, early nation in the plans of God. Now, okay, so if we've historically looked at this and said, well, okay, maybe the thesis doesn't bear out, and maybe the sources of this American identity are not found in the New England period, maybe at the very least, that is not the root of it all. And history does not bear it out. Fair enough. But we still have to wrestle with it on the theological side. We still have to wrestle with the issue now. Is America somehow a Christian nation? And we're not the first to struggle with this question, to be honest. Because church history bears this out as well. You remember back in the 4th century when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, was converted. 
And Christianity went from being persecuted religion to nearly the state religion overnight. And allowed the church to flourish greatly. It allowed the church to grow. It allowed the church to expand in the Roman Empire. It allowed the church to establish itself and wrestle through hard theological issues like the doctrine of the Trinity and our Christology and all of these things. And then roughly around the 5th century, the Roman Empire began to crumble. And parts of the empire began to be controlled by local princes and other lords and other things began to happen. And Christians began to fear the Roman Empire falls, what will happen to Christianity? We've lived under this protection for so long. What will happen now? And if you read St. Augustine's book, The City of God, he wrestles with that question. How do we as Christians survive the fall of the Roman Empire? And his solution was to describe then two cities in that book, the city of God and the city of man. And that the city of God has a purpose, a heavenly purpose, a ultimate eschatological purpose. And that purpose will survive irregardless of the city of man. Irregardless of what kind of city of man, whether it is the Roman Empire or some other empire. And we have numerous examples of that all over the world now, right? It does not matter if you live in a democratic country a dictatorship that we've seen in history, a communist country, city of God still survives. Churches still survive. And in many cases, historically, it can be argued that it is when that church is persecuted that it grows even more. That you would expect it to be stamped out, but no, no, no. In fact, every time we've seen persecution, the church flourishes. The church grows. The city of God survives irregardless of the city of man. And I would argue that the city of God has a different purpose than the city of man as well. And here's where we now start to get back to this issue. God bless America or the land of Gog and Magog. Is our purpose as a nation the same as our purpose as a Christian, as the church? Are those identical? Is what America is doing in the realm of foreign relationships and policies, is that the same thing that the church is doing? Are those callings the same? I would argue no. Not at all. And that is not an unpatriotic thing to say. Because we as American citizens have dual responsibility, right? We have responsibility as citizens here in America. Yet we also have responsibilities in the church. And those are two different things. And to keep that in mind as you explore issues now is to demonstrate what Augustine described, city of God, city of man. And what I've tried to do is at least demonstrate to you that historically, Historically, that confusion was not the case in that first generation of Americans. That is not the root of this. You cannot go back and claim that that first generation are the founders of this kind of America. Not at all. Not at all. And the relationship now that we as Christians in America have is to now reevaluate that kind of rhetoric with what I would call the true mission of the church and what 
does that look like? How do we accomplish that? How do we accomplish that in such a way that we do not confuse it with agendas that are coming on a political side? And that's hard to do. And sometimes you have to take issue by issue because there'll be places where there might actually be overlap. But it has to be thought out very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. And I would say even more so in this post 9-11 era, it has to be thought out very, very carefully. Because it will also affect everything from the intellectual dialogue that is going on to even the one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism and witness that you have to people here. How so? Is America's war on terrorism a war against Islam? Is it the case that America is defending Christianity in this war on terrorism? If you live in New York City and you're an American of Arab descent with an Islamic background, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of that? How? And how do we as Christians continue to evangelize and talk to our neighbors with that kind of overtone, if that's there? How? how do we deal with issues now in which many of our missionaries now are going overseas now into countries in which it is very difficult to be an American and still bring the gospel there? How do you do that? How do you wrestle with these kinds of issues? And I think, and I think it is this point now where the church really has to think carefully. And the church really has to consider and weigh what its mission is and how to accomplish that. Part of this lecture here now is to talk about the application of all of this. And I've just kind of traced out a couple of, of lines of thought here that we can follow up more on. But I want to stop right now first and at least, before getting into some of those issues more, at least give you opportunity to ask questions on the history of all of this. If there are questions here about the history and about what I've laid out here in kind of general format here, just to, to start with that and then we can move on to some questions about the application of all of this. But I want to give you opportunity at least to engage with this historical background before moving into to some, some of the other topics and issues. Question? I, I would say that the 17, we're talking about the 17th century here, the most dominant end time eschatology was a form of premillennialism. Now it wasn't identical really with either of these two because these are modern kind of constructions here. But it was uh, similar in the sense that they all expected, for the most part, a future 1,000-year kingdom of Christ on earth. They believed that. That's, I, I would argue, historically, that's the most dominant view in the 17th century. The most dominant. It, it, in many ways, it still is the most dominant view in American evangelicalism today. It is not the most dominant uh, view in our reform circles. Yeah, but in wider evangelicalism, and particularly historically in the 17th century, that's a fascinating question. Because what happened in the 17th century, you're right, is very unique. If you were to go back to the 16th century, 
to the first generation of the reformers, you know, Luther and onward in the 16th century, you will see that the three branches of Protestantism, the three major branches in the 16th century, Lutheran, Reformed, and what would be the Church of England back then, the Anglican Church, in their documents, Formula of Concord, Helvetic Consensus, and the Articles of England, this premillennialism, or in their language, millenarianism, was considered heresy. Yeah. There was a radical change that happened in the 17th century, and it was so radical that I would argue became quite the dominant eschatology, which these New England settlers were part of. Sure, sure. The question, the question was asking, uh, the form of eschatology in the 17th century, was it premillennial? I think that's the general question there. Right, right. I mean, I mean America carves itself up today, demographically, in all kinds of different ways now, that you know, Southwest has much more of a Latino, Hispanic flavor to it. It could be argued parts of the Western, uh, far West Coast are more Asian than anything else now. I mean, all kinds of different ways. But the interesting thing here is people don't realize, I think, that even though you're living in a world that is uh, technologically very different than ours today, nevertheless, the dissemination of information is quite amazing. That someone could publish a book in England or in Europe and you can get it in America within six weeks of that. I mean, that's the kind of information that's passing back and forth. And so what we're really talking about here is a transatlantic world. And that's kind of the new buzzword in the history of this period now, so talk about transatlantic history. That these things cannot be seen in isolation. Countries are constantly interacting with each other. And across languages, too. Because the intellectual language that was being used still in the writings is Latin. So it didn't matter if you were of German, Swiss, English, French heritage. You wrote and read each other's works all in Latin. So you can interact with all scholars throughout Europe in a common language still in the 17th century. Yeah. So the information is going back and forth, back and forth. So it wasn't as if you know, people think, well, they got on this boat and they left England and they traveled all the way to America. And then they were, you know, because of distance, they're cut off. And they have no connection, and therefore they are this kind of new world in America. Not quite. Not quite. The back and forth of information and travel was pretty remarkable for the 17th century. That. And, and I, I think that really changes our perception then of what's happening back in that period with information and with dialogue especially. That's the question, yeah. That's the question. Part of it, I think, is they had a lot to do with it. Because from the 1930s on, that impression has been given such weight and such strength because of historical arguments that's, that have supposedly supported Other places, I think, we begin to see that also is what comes out particularly once America does become its own nation in the War of Independence. Now you have to justify yourself in a particular way now because you are actually now going into war and the language comes out all over again now. The language of an American purpose comes out there in order to justify war and breaking with the old world. At that point, that is a definitive break that we're seeing now. But it, it also then takes a different form, though, in that period of time as well. It is not simply, it is, it is no longer the, the break with the old world by the time of the War of Independence is not one in which 
there's this kind of millennial fusion going, infusion going on in there. Why? Because, again, now we're at a period historically of the Enlightenment in Europe where men and women don't even consider Christianity a valid, rational belief system anymore. And therefore, all we're talking about now is the ability as Americans by our own might and effort to accomplish great things. And we're destined for it. See? And that begins to build even more. Because what comes out particularly in the, the 18th century with the foundations of America, America is founded principally upon republicanism that describes equal virtues in everyone. It doesn't matter, right, who your parents were. It doesn't matter what your inheritance was. You can make it on your own here based on your own abilities now. That is an entirely different view of society and individuals than what you see in the 17th century. Entirely different now. Right? By that point, it's, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're of royal heritage. It makes no difference. Each man, each woman, unto their own now, can do whatever they want here in America. With that. that changes entirely. And that, I think, builds the ideas of manifest destiny that are going onward now even though it's left the kind of Christian religious, what, what Mark Knoll would have described as the Puritan canopy behind now. So it's discarded that, but it's taken on a, a similar kind of outlook without the Christian kind of backdrop. I think you see it as, as early as the 19th, probably even the 18th century. I, I, I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I think you see it as early than in the political language there, but I'd have to look it up. I'm not quite... Certain on that. I think, I think they would have seen um, different scales of understanding of their society. That there is the sovereignty of God over all things with a particular authority given to various institutions within society. The church being one and the state being another. So these early settlers, they still had allegiance to the king. When their charter was revoked, they still sent a representative back to Old England to argue for a new charter as a colony there. There is still that order under God that has given authority then to various institutions, which are, I would argue, which are not identical other than the fact that they must show that they're under God still. So even the monarch is under God, and hence why if a monarch is somehow not fulfilling his responsibility or her responsibility under God, there is the right to resist that monarch. And that's exactly what they did in the 1640s in England to the point where they executed their monarch. That, now that is, a, that is a, I would argue, a radical move in the 17th century to execute a monarch. Because prior to that, divinely appointed, God appoints monarchs and you don't touch them. Now, all of that changes again, I would argue, by, by the foundation of America as its own nation in the 18th century. But I think they would have seen, under the sovereignty of God, different institutions given different authorities by God in that way. But nevertheless, all, all having to uh, demonstrate their uh, allegiance to God in some form. Now... Again, I, I think what some can say, well, well, what's the difference there, Jeff? You know, if you're going to say 
that they're under God and there's a church, but there's a government that still is under God. Isn't that a Christian nation? Isn't that a nation under God as well? But the difference is, of course, is that their world was entirely different from ours. In their world, the options in terms, there are no governments in the 17th century that are saying, we're atheist governments and freedom of religion, you can choose whatever you want. Or at the very most, we're agnostic governments and freedom of religion, choose whatever you want. No, your options were Roman Catholic nations, Protestant nations, or Islamic nations. That's it. If you're a Roman Catholic nation, there is still, under the sovereignty of God, principally with the Pope as the head in that. Protestant nations, still sovereignty under God. Islamic nations, still sovereignty under Allah, right? There is no... Uh, con uh, what we see, particularly in the foundation of America, a separation of church and state in how we see it here in America today. It doesn't exist in that world. Nevertheless, I think they do have distinctions between institutions. It's very different. I was, I was very surprised by this, having lived in Britain for a few years and seeing the kind of, even though the church really doesn't have the same function as it did in the 17th century, yet it's still there and it still exists in their society as an institution in, in the way the church doesn't in America. It still has a stately function within British society that American churches do not. Uh, and so it's, it's a very different world there as a result of this no separation of church and state that we have principally built into the foundation of America as a nation. I think that dispensationalism today is not the same as the 17th century millenarianism as it's described here. And it really is a... 20th century, I should say late 19th century, 20th century phenomenon that emerges in America as a result of the changing theological climate that is happening. And let me, I'll just, just uh, briefly describe what I think happened here. I'll give you one example. By the late 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, the most dominant academic theology that was out there that was influencing churches, that was becoming threatening to many conservative churches was liberalism. And liberalism reduces then Christianity to simply um, moral truths, if I can put it that crassly. It's, I'm probably not doing as much as I should, but basically what it comes down to is moral truths because historicity is up for question. We don't know if the Bible is really historically accurate or not at that. And even such issues of inspiration. Is it really the divine word of God? in its form and in what it's given. And so it becomes then a book of truths. It becomes a moral book. It becomes examples. It becomes symbolic metaphors for how to live. If that's the prevalence going on, the reaction to that was, no, 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 no. This is not metaphors. This is not symbol. This is literal. This is to be taken literal, and it's historical. And one way to just demonstrate its historicity is prophetic fulfillment, right? How do you know it's the word of God? How do you know what it says is actually true and historical? Well, there's prophecies in it, and the prophecies are happening. And dispensationalism is built on an interpretive principle that every prophecy literally must happen in history. And if you can demonstrate that, and if you can prove that, wow, you've got a sword against liberalism. You've got a way to combat liberalism now. And I think that context is what's birthing dispensationalism more than Christians self-consciously saying, 17th century millenarians got it right, and I'm going to kind of just build on them 
adapted a little bit to my own context. I think it's much more what's happening in the context of how liberalism has swept into America from Germany. And this is one of the useful responses. There's all other kinds of responses as well, right? Liberalism says we don't know anything about the supernatural. You can't tell what the supernatural is about. That's the enlightenment. We don't know. All we know is what our empirical senses tell us. So spiritual world, nothing about it. Interesting enough, at the same time dispensationalism is rising, charismatic church is rising as well. Because do you want to see the spiritual world? Do you want to see it in power? I'll demonstrate it for you. Healing, miracles, tongue speaking, all of these things are physical manifestations of what liberalism says you know nothing about. You can never prove. I'll show you. So all of these things are emerging at the same time, I think, and that's what we're seeing in America now. In, in the late 19th century, it is German scholarship that begins to deconstruct how we view the Bible. And essentially what they've decided, what many German scholars in that period did, a, a number of things happened. One, they began to say that the most dominant way of understanding knowledge, any sort of knowledge, is to rationally prove it. You can only believe that which you can rationally prove. So everything, and it doesn't matter if it's theology, biblical studies, or it's any other kind of discipline of learning of science, it all has to be submitted to rational uh, tests. If that is the case, then, when you approach theology, it must be submitted to rational tests. And things like miracles are irrational. You cannot prove them rationally. If that is the case, then from that argument now, they began to look at the Bible and began to deconstruct what the Bible says historically, what can be proven and not. Okay, we can prove that there actually was a guy named Jesus who lived in Palestine during that period of time. What we cannot prove is that he rose from the dead. That's, that we cannot prove. But So basically, that's how they began to examine the Bible and theology primarily through scientific rational method. And where did that came, come from? Where, what drove them to start to do that to the Bible? The Enlightenment. From the Enlightenment comes philosophies that say, everything out there that is spiritual, let's bracket it, because there's no way of proving it. That which is true, these philosophers from Descartes onward said, what can be proven is only that which is tested to my empirical senses. What I can see, taste, smell, hear, these are things that I know is true. God could exist, spiritual things could, but I have no way of proving it at all. And that began to now become fully applied, particularly in Germany, in the theological research and study of that period of time, and with huge influence over Europe, England, and even into North America as well. Primarily, uh, Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher in the liberal tradition, uh, borrowing also uh, Hegel from history and, and theology, and uh, Albert Ritchell would be one of the other big names too that is moving in that trend, building on that. And those are the kind of pillar names of what's going on. There's a whole bunch of other guys also. But those are the kind of, of, of theologians that were having the most impact of, of applying enlightenment philosophy to the study of theology. Let me, let me then move to asking for, maybe we can discuss a little bit and talk about some of the implications of this for today in particular. 
and I've said this a, a couple of times now, and I think there really is a lot of confusion going on today in terms of an, an American identity. And what does it mean to be a, a Christian in America? And, and it touches all kinds of issues, too. You know, is it proper, we've seen this argument, is it proper to have the Ten Commandments displayed in a public courthouse? You know, everything from that issue all the way to how we interact in the Middle East and what's happening there and how religion affects what is happening in regards to particularly Muslim nations. Uh, that. I think that's where all of this now starts to really have a practical application in how we look at, it, at, at the world around. And I'm convinced that Augustine's principles, though they need to be modified and adjusted because we're not in the same context as Augustine, nevertheless, still have some wonderful things to teach us in regards to the city of God and the city of man and how we must see each other or we must see ourselves as members of both of these cities and how we function in both and how the church is supposed to function as the city of God, different and distinct from the city of man. How does that bear out? Questions, thoughts on that. How does that bear out in American society, what you've seen? Well, that would, we would have to examine that. I, mean, I think the, the, that the principles of Christianity that all Christians believe in, absolutely, these are things that we can't deny. That, that's what it means to be Christian. We live that way. We make choices that way. We act in the public sphere in that way. But if we push it, for example, should we in America apply or, or construct laws that say to believe in any other religion other than Christianity is unlawful? Should we mandate Christianity as a religion? If now, we as Christians believe Christianity is the only, we're not, we're not a pluralist, right? We don't believe that there's all different kinds of religions that can get you to God. I really believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way unto salvation. If that is the case, and if we're supposed to have that be our primary purpose, shouldn't we argue? Isn't it a good thing to have laws that require everyone to be Christian? If that's the case, sure. So no, don't. It's not. It's not a Christian principle to force to compel people to to now. Now others have thought it is actually, right? When the Roman Catholic nations and the Church in particular in the 16th and 17th century began to institute the Inquisition, it is very much because they believe that part of the role of the Church is to compel you unto Christ. And that compelling can take the form of physical compelling <laughs> and torture. So we've seen examples of that in Christendom in the past before. But I think what we're getting at here now is back to the theological principle of what is a state? What is a nation? And what are the purposes of nations? Why does God create nations? Why does God establish nations? And I think what we see in the establishment of nations, I would argue, is the principle, the principle of justice, right? You've got to have justice, especially in a fallen world. You have to have justice. And also the principle of, I would argue, liberty or freedom. 
And what I mean by that is that under the construction of what God has established in a nation, is that nation is supposed to apply principles of justice and freedom. And that doesn't mean compelling someone to be a Christian. That means making it possible, particularly for the church, to exist in peace and function towards its calling. So do I believe communist nations are, are proper? Do I endorse communist nations? No, I don't. Because they violate that principle of justice and freedom and allowing the church to prosper. Now, where does this all come from? I would argue this comes from Genesis. I would argue that when God, after the flood, establishes his covenant with Noah, that that covenant is what we call a common grace covenant. It's a covenant to everyone, all of creation. And, what he, and it's interesting to see that what God establishes right after that with Noah is once again we see principles of justice. You shed someone's blood, your blood will be given. Principles of justice applied across. And so establishing a nation then is to establish it upon justice now. And that means, and I would rightly argue here in America, the freedom of religion. I would not argue for Christianity being the state religion here. But under that, the protection of the church and the freedom for you and I as Christians to live as Christians, to act as Christians, to, in the public sphere, in the political sphere, to vote as Christians, to argue diligently for Christian principles there. But never to force or compel someone into the church. Never to force or compel someone into the church. And I think that's what we're seeing in this relationship between what it means to be city of God, city of man. The church has its function, but we never want the government to be the church. Now, when the church, you don't have a choice, right? If you come to membership of the church, and if you say to your pastor, you know what, I actually believe that um, everyone from Hinduism to Buddhist and all these other people, they, they will be in heaven too because they're devout Buddhists or devout Muslims or devout Hindus. Conservative Christian pastor will never let you become a member of the church for believing that, right? There are restrictions in the church. But those restrictions are not the same restrictions as in the government of being a citizen in a particular nation. There's a difference going on there. And I think those are the kinds of things where this idea of city of God and city of man have to be clearly delineated there. And if it is the case, you know, if it is the case that you have a situation in which yeah, in this society, we have lots of Christians here. Wow. That means they could accomplish quite a bit in terms of justice and liberty and peace because they understand what true justice and true liberty and true peace are. And that can flourish when you have a place where, yeah, there's actually a lot of Christians here. But, of course, you know, you've seen it. We all sinned. And there's never heaven on earth. And there never will be heaven on earth until Christ returns and establishes the new heaven, new earth. So even as we labor in earthly cities, we will always face, always face the difficulty, the suffering, the struggle, the persecution, all of that part of the existence of what it means to live in the city of man, yet be a citizen in the city of God. And if that's the case, we shouldn't expect any different. Because that's how Jesus lived, right? And if our hope is in Christ, then we will walk the way he did. And we will one day reach the city of God. 
And I think that's the Christian hope in eschatology. And that's how we begin to examine that all of these various issues as we look throughout the world around us, our own lives, and our own interactions. <laughs>